I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a wild, freewheeling conversation with the radical lawyer, Stanley L. Cohen. He's represented members of the Weather Underground, Hamas, Hezbollah, a relative of Bin Laden, and many others. He's a controversial figure, to say the least, and he'll be joining us to talk about his views on Israel Palestine, Hamas, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, anti-imperialism, and much more. Whether you agree or disagree with some of Stanley's opinions, his takes on a number of matters, I think that you're going to find this to be a rollicking conversation. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Stanley L. Cohen. Welcome to Parallax Views, uh, a guest who has lived a fascinating life as a human rights attorney and political activist. Uh, Stanley Cohen, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Thanks for the honor of uh, being invited to chat with you for a while. So, uh, Stanley, if you could, for my listeners, Maybe you could give a little bit of background about who you are, because, uh, you know, you've been called many things over the years, uh, human rights attorney, uh, freedom fighter, uh, more pejoratively, uh, there's been people that have attacked you as the, the terrorist's attorney uh, or the world's most self-hating Jew. You do have uh, haters out there. So how would you describe yourself? Um, the third, fourth generation Narodnik. <laughs> 
<laughs> my my it's funny i was posting something today my grandfather was i posted something today which i think people could appreciate my great-grandmother was victimized by pogroms my grandfather uh, was targeted for murder by the czar my father liberated concentration camps um, among other things i fight zionism um, you know, people have this notion that I've sort of just one day, you know, popped up. Um, uh, you know, I, I was 16 years old the first time I was arrested in the anti-war movement against Vietnam. I was 18 or 19 the first time the FBI came to my, my apartment in Brooklyn, where I went to university at one point. Uh, and alleged that I've been involved in a series of fire bombings of, of, of draft of Marine recruiting stations in Brooklyn. Uh, I was a VISTA volunteer just south of Wounded Knee at around the same time, living and working with the Winnebago, Omaha, Santee Sioux Indian Nations. Uh, I came back. I was a community organizer and a social worker. I ran a street drug program for largely young teens of color who were homeless or dropouts school dropouts. Uh, from there, I went to law school. Uh, my, my godfather, who's a famed trade union organizer and president, said, you know, time for you to move on, man. This is like West Indian guys. This is done. We need you fighting in the courts. So went to law school. And the only job I, while I was accepted at a number of top-notch white-collar law firms when I got out of law school, including, you know, Wall Street courted me. And the only job I applied for and got was the Legal Aid Society, the Criminal Defense Division in the South Bronx, where I um, practiced for six or seven years. And uh, among other clients represented Larry Davis, who was accused and acquitted of shooting nine police officers in the Bronx. Uh, I then went into private practice with Lynn Stewart for many years, worked closely with Lynn and Bill Kunstler. Um, eventually, you know, went off into my practice. I, I just wanted to ask briefly, what was it like working uh, with Bill Kunstler and, and Lynn Stewart? Because I'm I'm a big fan of both, and especially uh, Bill Kunstler. I think he was a very principled man. Well, Bill once said we were we were leaving the courthouse, having tried a case and won, and we were leaving the courthouse, and a journalist came up to Bill came up to to Bill and said, um, came up to me actually and said, "What what's it like?" Um, being, you know, the next Bill Kunstler. And Bill Kunstler interrupted and said, you should really ask me what it's like being the first Stanley Cohen. Um, Bill and I were close. Lynn and I were very close. We had a practice for a number of years. Um, I represented her on the state conviction, the state charge. When she was indicted by the feds, I was supposed to represent her, but I got conflicted out as a potential witness. Um, I was indicted in Canada at the Oko standoff as the attorney who represented the Mohawk Warrior Society, who I represented for 20 years, 15 to 20 years. I still do a lot of work um, in indigenous communities. My partner of 25 years is a Mohawk woman from Akwesasne. Um, in 1993, four, I was approached uh, by some friends in the Muslim world uh, to uh, see if I'd be interested in representing someone I'd never heard of before who'd been stopped at the airport entering the United States, coming back, he was a resident. And I had just finished the, the, a six, basically a six month trial of the squat, the squatter movement, the squats on 
the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the 13th Street battle, which we had won. And I just wanted to get the hell out of the city and go away with my then girlfriend to go on holiday for a week. And I got a call and they said, um, there's this man that we think you'd be a perfect fit for. Uh, would you would would you be interested in 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 representing him or at least talking to him? He's at MCC. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I'm tired. I got to go away. I got to go on a holiday. I got my girlfriend's going to kill me. Who is it? And they said, oh, Musa Abu Marzouk. And I said, who's that? And they said, oh, he's the head of Hamas. And I said, oh, OK. So I called my girlfriend. I said, listen, got a sprained ankle. Can't go to Maine. Go on up there. I, you know, off I went to MCC. I walked in and saw Musa, who, you know, 25 years later remains a close friend, a comrade, a buddy, a brother. And I walked in and I had jeans on and my hair was a mess and my shirt was tattered and I was tired. And I walked in and he said to me, who are you? And I used the code word that was given to me to provide to him. To, to let him know I was, you know, I had, I was a, a good guy. And I said, I'm a lawyer. And he looked up and down and up and down, up and down. And he said, you're a lawyer. And I said, yeah. He said, I don't need a lawyer. I said, you're right. You need a dozen. So I represented Abu Marzouk and it took two years and one. Israel wanted to extradite him when we won. We worked out a removal to Jordan and the rest is history. And, you know, over the last 25 years, I've done a, a lot of work in the Middle East, a lot of work in Africa, a lot of work in, in parts of Europe, uh, represented a lot of movements and individuals and political leaders and, and folks and international cases and domestic cases. Yeah. What do you think the biggest misconception people have about the work you do and about uh, the Middle East and, and um, you know, countries like Africa and, and some of the people you've represented? What do you think people don't understand? Anything. <laughs> Most people don't. They, they, they see these battles, they hear these names, they see these movements. You know, in fact, I was get, getting ready to come on to, with, with you and I was conveying with some, exchanging with someone who just posted that stupid nonsense story that, you know, Hamas is a front organization for Israel or was founded by it. And then, you know, posted Rand Paul as a reliable source and then posted a journalist who happened to be Muslim, Mahdi Hassan, you know, and it's nonsense. I think that um, about me, I can't, you know, look, I don't really care what people believe or feel about me. Um, many, a good number of my closest friends in the world are people that are designated terrorists, uh, people I have very close relationships with. You know, I've said for years that, you know, the difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter is who wins. That's the reality. Um, you know, people have this notion, these various notions about me that I'm naive or I'm in it for the money. And what they don't realize is most of my international work is pro bono to avoid OFAC and reporting requirements with the federal government. It's none of their business. Um, uh, you know, this, this, this notion of, of you know, self-hating Jew is just when all else fails, when you, when you argue with Zionists, when you fight with Zionists, and I, and I very rarely do it because the, it's largely sophomoric. It's large. It's largely talismanic. It's largely chant. It's ill-informed. It's not experienced. But when I've, you know, debated and argued and 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 dealt with 
quote, the few informed ones. When all else fails, they simply say self-hating Jew. When they throw rhetoric and nonsense and bullshit out, you push back with fact and history and law and reality, it's self-hating Jew. And it's a very convenient chant. Um, and I love, you know, when, when, when the religious Zionists, you know, uh, uh, raise that crap, I have to remind them that in my parents' orthodox faith and religion, I'm a direct descendant of Moses and Aaron. And both of them were not allowed into the quote unquote Holy Land. The, 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 um, they were iconoclasts. And I, I, I was going to say uh, really briefly, too, I, I've never understood that um, that self-hating Jew line because I, I've seen you, uh, you know, reject uh, sort of um, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy type tropes, the type of stuff you hear oh, from yeah. David Icke. I mean, you, you throw that in the garbage and say, no, this doesn't help anyone. No, no, I, I um, uh, it, it's nonsense, it's bullshit. It plays into, A, it plays into the, the, the Israeli, the Zionist Hezbollah. B, it, it's part of the whole, you know, Israel, equals Judaism, Zionism equals Judaism. You know, I've said for years, it's as if Judaism is this three or four or whatever it is, 5,000 year old, you know, fraternity that was walking around in the wilderness waiting for a collective of 19th century uh, agnostics uh, from Europe to give them meaning, identity and purpose. Um, no, I, I this this you know the the Rothschild bullshit and controlling you know the world and Zog and all that nonsense. I, I it's it's it does nothing. It's not real. It it plays into the hands of the Zionist narrative, uh, creates more problems and proposed solutions. And it's completely you know it, it's it's part of this this need by people to just throw out the enemy to to drop the beast to very narrowly define what it's all about. You know, folks like to talk about this collective of international cabals and conspiracies and, and the, you know, the, the world being controlled by six people, four of them Jews and, you know, two of them ponies. Um, it, it does nothing. It's counterproductive. It, it, so, you know, when it comes to understanding the Middle East, it's filled with rhetoric. It's filled with lack of knowledge. It, um, you know, I have a very, 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 for example, in Palestine, I have someone I'm very close to, a dear friend of mine, I've known for many years, a, a young woman who, you know, has said publicly, she said, I don't like Hamas, I don't like Fatah, but I, I love our resistance. It gives us dignity. Um, so I think there's a, a huge misconception. And to the degree that I have represented Hamas, I've done cases involving Hezbollah, I've done cases involving Al Shabbat. I've done. I negotiated with ISIS to try to save someone. Um, I've uh, litigated in, in in the ICC. Um, there's a long list. But before that, I, I represented the IRA. I I've done work with the. I think Sunday you Easter. represented the uh, the Weather Underground as well. I've, I've actually yeah, had I've no done... airs on the show. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, I, I after the, I, I, I worked with Seku. I represented Seku, Seku Odinga, with the Chokwe Lumumba, the head, the, the, the great founder of, or one of the leaders of the, 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 the Africa, the Republic of New Africa. I represented the Mohawk Warrior Society. Um, I've represented a lot of national liberation movements, a lot of freedom fighters, a lot of people that have placed their liberty and their lives in jeopardy. It's the practice that I've had. And keep in mind, I, we're talking about you know, 50, 55 years of, of this since a kid, 50, over 50 years. 
uh, which started out in the anti-war movement and and was involved in a lot of different approaches. Um, I loved being a social worker. I loved working with with young, uh, largely kids of color that were runaways and homeless kids that had drug problems. Um, I loved working at legal aid. And you know, it's I have I've been lucky. I've never had a job. I've never had a job. From the time I'm 16, I've been fortunate enough to be in a position to fight the good fight and do work. That's not work. It's it's what I believe, it's what I think, what I feel, and to move on. And here I am, you know, all these years later, I'm still doing it. It's not going to change. And with my final breath, uh, I'll smile and say fuck you to everyone and move on. I want to pivot to the article you wrote in Counterpunch recently, uh, Imperialism and the Struggle Against It Begins at Home. But I, I had one more question sure. uh, about um, Hamas, since, you know, I, I think people are going to hear Hamas and say, oh, my God, you know, that, isn't that designated a terrorist group? What What has your experience been like with members of Hamas and what perspective do you think people don't have when it comes to Hamas? Well, I, I don't, you know, when, when people hear Hamas, they think ISIS. It's as if Hamas is not a, a national liberation movement built of, of Palestinians from Palestine, people in Gaza, people in the West Bank. The other the aspect that's lost is the framers, the founders of Hamas were physicians, were lawyers, were engineers, were doctors, were academics, were farmers, were young women and men. Who, many of whom were no longer in Gaza on the ground and returned. They gave up opportunities. They gave up, in some cases, fame, for lack of a better word, in some cases, financial success to go home and fight for their country, their land, their people, their freedom. This is a movement that is, is indigenous to Palestine and in particular Gaza. Um, its framer, the late uh, great, uh, one of its founders, its key founder, it's certainly its spiritual leaders, Sheikh Ahmed, was a was a pretty good friend of mine for a number of years, as were all the original leaders. I've worked with them very closely. Incredibly principled organization. Um, have I disagreed with them and they with I over things that may have occurred? Of course. Um, but it's not my position to dictate the tell, although I've certainly never been quiet in my positions and my, my view. Um, incredibly principled, incredibly dynamic, um, in, in incredibly focused, uh, good men, good women, uh, people who are from the ground and only care about one thing, and that's the liberation of Palestine. That's justice for Palestinians, that's independence for Palestinians, for their children, their grandchildren, and for generations to come. And people don't understand it. You know, and, and the West and Israel, for example, over the last week or so, there have been a number of, of operations, martyrdom operations in, in, in Israel proper, quote unquote, for lack of a better word. And, you know, Israel right away says, oh, it's ISIS. Well, it's not ISIS, it's Palestinians. And Israel calls them Arabs, Arab, Arab Israelis. No, they're Palestinians. Um, and that, that has a double-edged sword because right away it says, oh, see, the Palestinians are terrorists. So it's better to call it ISIS. Blame it on those, what, the crazy people from the United Kingdom or the United States that went somewhere? Um, look, it's, it's a national liberation movement, not just Hamas, whether it's Hamas, whether it's Jihad, whether it's the PFLP, whether it's civil society, whether it's a young 16-year-old or 14-year-old with a stone and a mask, it's, it's Palestinian resistance in all of its iterations. And I wanted to ask also in this regard, 
when it when it comes to talking about Israel, obviously, I would say that you're an anti-Zionist. So not you're oh, even yeah. critical of liberal Zionism. Maybe you could oh, yeah. explain uh, how you became an anti-Zionist and, and just get into that a little for my audience that may be unfamiliar with it. Well, I mean, look, look, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. My father helped to, to liberate concentration camps in World War II. My mother was a young girl in the United States in the 30s, raised money on street corners for Zionism. Um, um, I, I lost family in Europe, in Europe during World War II. You know, some people say, well, was it in the ovens? Which concentration camp? We don't know. Just the family was disappeared. Who knows? Um, I had a bar mitzvah. I went to Hebrew school. But, at, you know, I remember, you know, while in Hebrew school, you know, being in the, the, the pool room downstairs before classes playing pool and you'd look on the walls and there were these, you know, these photos of kibbutzim, you know, and, and, and the rhetoric of it came out of the earth and came out of the sand and we recreated and rebuilt society. And then one day I discovered, you know, along with many other falsehoods, not just about Zionism, but about the political faith that's fed to us as young women and men in the West, that those kibbutzim, the Bernie Sanders kibbutzim were built on top of the ruins of leveled Palestinian, age-old Palestinian villages. It was it was it was nonsense. It was rhetoric. It was early Hasbara. So I mean, the, as I became more and more involved in politics, and as I looked and researched more and more, and as I, um, you know, branched off in my various forms of quote-unquote activism. Uh, you begin to reflect and think and look, and you know, one day the light bulb goes on. It doesn't happen just overnight. And by the time I was, I, you know, by the time I was a legal aid attorney, it was very clear in my mind that's in my early 30s that 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 Zionism was 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 a very, very deadly, dangerous European colonial project that has conflated itself with Judaism uh, and that has swallowed an age-old faith for political purposes. Um, it's got nothing to do with religion. It's got nothing to do with faith. It was built in the, 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 the 1860s, 70s, 80s, or whatever it is, by, 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 by men that were, didn't even have faith, almost all men, um, who were looking to get away, who were looking to steal land. It could have been Uganda. It could have been anywhere. And so this this myth, this legend of, oh, we're returning. And it's, I, I recently wrote an article somewhere else. And I said, you know, the, the Onondagas and the Oneidas, the Iroquois are age old, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 year old nations in North America that didn't come over the, the bridge, the Bering Strait, which is all bullshit. From the original inhabitants of Turtle Island, they, they're only you know, 20, 30 miles from Syracuse, you know, urban center of 30, 40, 50,000 people with I think six or 7,000 Jews. Would they have a problem if the, the Onondaga and the Oneida grabbed AR-15s, you know, jumped into their trucks, drove into Syracuse, threw everyone out, took over their homes, took over their businesses at gunpoint and said, get out of here? I mean, certainly the Oneidas and, and the Onondagas have a stronger claim if you if you follow the Zionist logic, because it's their land up until it's their communities up until 100 years ago, 150 years ago, not 3000. I mean, since we all come from Adam and Eve, apparently, unless it's Mars and we all come from Africa, uh, can we all not just go back and grab everything? 
So this 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 European colonial, this white European colonial project called Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism, has nothing to do with faith, has everything to do with the theft of land, with the destruction of lives, and with building an empire. And I, I also wanted to ask in that regard, um, I think you've spoken about this on your social media before, and I was wondering if you could clarify some of the history behind it, because uh, it's a complicated topic. But I, are you familiar with, uh, I think it's a, a paramilitary group called the uh, the Lehay or um, the Stern Gang. Yeah, could yeah, you talk yeah. a little bit about what that was? And it's it at one point to some extent, uh, I, I don't understand it fully, but may have tried to seek agreements with the Nazis. And again, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, so I defer to you. Well, I don't know whether to what extent. And yes, there were a handful. Um, but the reality of it is the Haganah, the Irgun, the Stern Gang, the Palmach were all European terrorist organizations. Um, I suspect were there were there members of the organization who collaborated with lots of folks? Yes. They got they wanted weapons, they wanted power, they wanted the ability to to export bodies and guns to Palestine. Uh, did they make deals with the devil? Of course they made deals with the devil. Um, some. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write the entire that would be giving them a courtesy. The reality of it is, if you go back and take a look in the eight, in the 1930s, early 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, World War II, you take a look on the walls of what were then post offices, you're going to see wanted, dead or alive. You're going to see European Jews, European Zionists. These were people that were wanted for terrorism, for hanging British soldiers, for bombing schools, for blowing up buildings for kidnapping people. I mean, the, the, the Stern Gang, the Irgun, the Palmach, the Haganah, my God, there was a battle between groups and, 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 and one of the groups bombed the ship that had, is, that had Jews from Europe coming to Palestine. This was a terrorist entity that engaged in vicious and deadly terrorist activity for 20 years. And they're the grandparents of the, the, the IOF or I, the IDF. They're the offshoot. Uh, these are the, the people that went from bombing the King David Hotel, from assassinating um, heads of, of you know, representatives of foreign governments, to hanging British soldiers, to raping Palestinian women and children, to burning down communities, to trying to send basically early day letter bombs to France and England. These were the people that one day raised the so-called flag, the Star of David, and said, oh, we're a country. We're good people. Really? And it didn't stop. And that's 74 years ago, and it's still going on nonstop. I'm glad you were able to clarify that because it's always been a, a subject that I've only known a little about. So I appreciate uh, the clarification. Uh, do you think that there's maybe a, a bit of a a changing of the tide when it comes to Israel and, and Palestine? Because it, it was interesting. Recently, I had the uh, chance to see Gideon Levy, uh, the, the journalist from Haritz, mm -hmm. talking mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. And he said, you know, I can no longer support even a, a liberal form or a left form of Zionism. And yeah. it's interesting mm -hmm. to me. I see a lot of uh, younger people uh, that really aren't buying a lot of the narratives uh, that are coming out of the sort of Hasbara playbook anymore. Do you think uh, we're at a turning point? 
Yeah, I, look, I, the reality of it is Israel cannot survive without American Jews. Um, American Jews that have quietly, and I'm involved in some litigation right now, used um, some organizations have used and have used um, not-for-profit organizations and tax-exempt status to fund illegal criminal West Bank settlements um, for years. The whether it's APAC, whether it's lobbyists, whether it's it's money, whether it's organizing, whether it's young kids, you know, having this romantic notion, I'm going to get on the, the plane and go do a Leah and go home, um, or whether it's, you know, Jews from Brooklyn that use the West Bank settlements as 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 our, as Airbnb. You know, they go a couple of times a year, they chill out, they get one with nature, they get to carry an AR-15 and be John Wayne, and then they go back to Brooklyn and they go back to being stockbrokers or go back to being school teachers. Um, the backbone, the financial, the political, um, and in their mind, the moral backbone of Israel has forever been American Jewry. Um, and as long as they were one generation removed from the Holocaust, they, it was a war that stayed together. As long as the backbone were people that saw whose mothers and fathers told them who were participants directly or one generation removed from the nightmare, not just Jews, but the nightmare that Russians had, that Christians had, that gypsies had, that members of the LGBT community had from Nazi Germany, although I'm not going to downplay there was a particular a group in particular that was identified by Nazis for extermination. Um, as long as there was that connection, Israel was, could continue to sell the bullshit. But that's two generations ago. You've got increasing numbers of young Jewish men and women who don't buy it, who don't support it, who won't accept it, who have no interest in subsidizing it financially, emotionally, morally, physically, um, who have no interest in going to Ben Gurion so that they could you know, put camouflage on and carry an AR-15 and run around who understand that you can't be a principled, decent, progressive human being and support Israel. They're antithetical to one another. And I think the tide is turning. And I think with the BDS movement worldwide, and I think the same holds true with the younger community worldwide. And I think Israel understands that. And that it is for that very reason that increasingly Israel has reached out to messianic evangelical communities you're a Zionist, you're a Zionist, you're a Zionist. Bubba from Arkansas, you're a Zionist. Um, because they, they, they see the swing and there is this hope that somehow they're going to be able to substitute perhaps money, uh, but not certainly not historical tradition, faith and purpose by them to survive. And it's not working. And they know that. And, and I think it only grows more quickly. Um, I, I, I think that that it is very clear in my mind that there are, you know, increasing numbers of young women and men, young Jews who don't, not just don't want to participate in it, not just want to walk away from it, but overtly, actively are fighting against it. Our anti-Zionist, whether it's, you know, the full-on proud Zionist or the, the liberal Zionists that sort of, you know, puff and puff and say, oh, I can, I can be progressive and enlightened and be liberal about it and still support, you know, the occupation and still support. You, you mean like the sort of uh, the J Street sort of crowd that, that really wants to differentiate itself from maybe APAC? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also have the Bernie, the Bernie Sanders who, you know, have no problem 
with with a trillion dollar F-15 boom, F-35 boondoggle because it's good for the workers of Vermont. And then those planes end up with a joint venture in Israel and dropping phosphorus and cluster bombs on Gaza. I mean, the Breinharts, the, you know, these, 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 the writers, the, the, the quote intellectuals who are desperately trying to hold on to, you know, they talk about Judaism and Zionism are not the same, but yet there's this feeling that they can't hold on to their Jewish identity unless they're able to support a Zionist and enlightened Zionism. And what they don't get or can't admit to or come to grips with is it's antithetical. It's, it's antithetical. You know, a white rose grows. It grew in Germany and it grows here. Um, Zionism at its core, left, right, middle, whatever you want to call it, is a dark, evil cabal. It is based upon war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. You know, people talk about they're offended by apartheid. Apartheid is the least of the problem. I mean, the fact that, you know, people have all of a sudden woken up and said, oh, my God. There's a nation state with 65 separate laws. There are these separations of highways and schools and teachings and different privileges and rights you're entitled to. And I'm not just talking about Palestinians in the occupied territory. I'm talking about, quote unquote, the 48 Jews, the Arab, the, 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 I mean, the, the Palestinians, the, the, the so-called 48 Arabs, as they're called, instead of Palestinians. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that's a sticking point with a lot of... Um you know, really ardent Zionists, they, uh, some of them just deny the existence of Palestinians altogether. And they just say, no, they're Arabs. Well, no, because, you know, look, the, it, it's kind of difficult to argue when you steal someone's home with, who've been there for thousands of years, you gotta, you gotta dehumanize them. You gotta decentralize them. You gotta turn them. They don't exist. They're just people that, you know, they sort of come, they sort of go, you know, they've been around, they've been there, they've been here. Um, so it's, it's, it's this, and I've had debates and discussions with people who I say, look, every time I, I was dealing with, with a, a, an Israeli lawyer, uh, actually originally from UK on the matter a year ago, and whenever we would have a discussion and he's, you know, he views himself as a progressive, as a, as a liberal Zionist, um, whenever he would say Arab, I would say Palestinian, he'd say no Arab, I'd say Palestinian. And then, you know, we just took sort of judicial notice between the two of us. But it is part of this stripping an identity, stripping a history, stripping a culture that is unique to that land, that home, that territory, that past, that future. It's sort of like what I get a kick out of is imagine if you said Germans and French and Italians and Poles and Ukrainians and Russians we're just Europeans. No, they're just Europeans. That's all Europeans. People would lose their shit, but it's okay. I mean, Jews that live in, in, in France, for example, yes, they self-identify as Jewish, of course, but they don't self-identify as Europeans. They self-identify as French. There is a unique history, tradition, culture, presence, purpose, identity, a, a clear connection to that land whether it's recent or old, but yet when it comes to Palestinians, you got to strip them of that. So you turn them into Arabs. You turn them into, into you know, Lawrence of Arabia film footage, you know, back lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're somewhere around here. I mean, if you want to talk about the generic somewhere around here, talk about the Gulf states, which were carved up, which were made, which were crafted and created by Britain 
that really have no identity of, of recent vintage that were just sort of, you know, the UAE, Bahrain, you know, just here you are, KSA. I mean, that's, that's, that's the flotilla of generic identity, not Palestine. I mean, Christ was Palestinian. <laughs> that's going to really lose, people are going to lose shit over that. He may have been a Jew, but he was a Palestinian Jew. And you know what? He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. He had brown skin and brown eyes. So when you're debating this with people, I think, you know, to me, the big threat is like the really radical sort of far right reactionary uh, sort of Zionism. Um, so so like um, Kahanism. Uh, but you're saying it, it goes much deeper than that. How do you make that point to people in a way that they can understand that? Well, I think you have to put it in their own context. You, you know, look, the conservatives, for lack of a better word, the fascists, the neo-fascists, the supremacists, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to change them. Nothing. But those people who think it's very hip and cool to have a tradition of lunch counter sit-ins, you know, the progressives, the liberals who think, you know, being arrested for two days for, you know, crossing a picket line is this noble confrontation against the system. And, and people have to understand, you know, what people seem to forget is this has been, this is even older than 74 years, which is the birth date when, you know, Israel was carved up by the United Nations. When Harry Truman, I once did some research on a piece and I've been looking for the citation, I can't find it, someone asked for it recently. You know, Harry Truman was, he really was opposed initially to the, to the, the idea of a Jewish state of Israel. And you know, he's having a discussion with his political advisors, and he ends up saying, he said, yeah, Jews have money and Jews vote. Palestinians don't. Next. What's the next issue I got to deal with? You know, you're talking about the theft of a land that was homogenized or accepted by the United Nations 74 years ago. But it started, you know, 20, 30, 40 years before then. People don't realize that what was originally a population of 3% of Jews in Palestine that owned land of maybe 4%, you know, just was spread and flushed and grew and pushed through a variety of ways. And, and then now all of a sudden it's our land. Well, yeah, maybe 3,700 years ago was you had a piece of the land. I mean, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the way the world operates. The world does, if it, because if it did, then everyone in the, in, in, in the United States, everyone in Canada, everyone in Latin America who's not fucking indigenous needs to pack their fucking bags and go back to Europe. I mean, that's the bottom line. And folks, you know, it's the well-intentioned people who say, you know, I feel bad, I feel sorry, but what can we do? You know, and I had this young Zionist who, you know, tried to bait me the other day into saying, everyone hates us everywhere. We're under threat. They're going to kill us everywhere. I said, you know, the seven to 10 million Jews in the United States, you know, yeah, there's some shit that happens every once in a while. It happens to Italians. It happens to Muslims. It happens to, black, you know, people of, of color have more problems than Jews. There's like seven to 10 million Jews in the United States. So you're telling me they're coming to get us? We're being, you know, exterminated? France? Germany? The UK? There is this perpetuation of this convenient and necessary political myth 
um, to try to rationalize a way to the world, gross violations of human rights that date back generations. So shifting gears here before we close out, this article that you wrote, Imperialism and the Struggle Against It Begins at Home, uh, I read that piece in Counterpunch, and I, of course, saw you on social media saying, I'm probably going to lose a few uh, few <laughs> followers over this, but screw them. Uh, so this is a, a rather scathing indictment of Vladimir Putin. I think there's elements of the left right now that I think uh, are being misguided in, in supporting uh, Vladimir Putin in this invasion of Ukraine. And I think you have the same impression. Uh, what led you to write this article and what's your basic take on what Vladimir Putin has done and how would you uh, push back on people that are supporting this? Look, the, 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 I could have you know, gotten involved in a pissing contest with self-described anti-imperialists over his foreign policy, over what he's done in Syria, over what he's done in Chechnya, over what he's done in, in, in the past in Ukraine. That's counting angels on the head of a pin. What I wanted to remind, quote unquote, anti-imperialists, and that's why it's anti-imperialism begins at home, is that you have to take a look at the state. You have to take a look at the structure. You have to take a look at the domestic life before you even begin to weigh the whole entity, the whole person, the whole state, the whole narrative. And I have litigated and fought against Putin for 20 years. I won a case in Interpol last year, also in the circuit court in the United States, and then in Interpol, where Interpol specifically held that an extradition warrant, a red notice for a client of mine, a Chechen, who's wanted for alleged terrorism, dating back 15 or 18 years, where he allegedly is a young guy threw a grenade at the FSB. My, my position, and I litigated in one, was you can't extradite him under the Convention Against Torture, because you forget for the moment the bullshit charge. But- if he's returned, the FSB is going to torture him on the basis of politics and faith. And they agreed. They, the, Russia didn't rebut it. Putin didn't rebut it. I have litigated and fought against the FSB, who was like full-time Guantanamo Bay 24-7 and has been for 20 years. You know, it, For years. So I'm dealing with hands-on. It's not rhetoric to me. I know the cases. I know the people. I know the legends. I know the facts. I know the circumstances. So my position is I'm not going to get drawn into a pissing contest. If, you, if you're a self-identified anti-imperialist and you have to put together, you can't talk about the United States invasion of Iraq without looking at Jim Crow, without looking at attacks on refugees, without looking at what the United States is. People scream about Gitmo. People scream about the murder of black women and men. People scream about, you know, the deep state. People scream about the CIAs. People scream about the NSA. And that in the United States, the left, certain aspects of the left, have the capacity to connect that with Iraq, with Vietnam, with the Cuban Missile Crisis really going back, with Allende, with everything else, everything imperial the United States has done. But when it comes to Russia, all of a sudden there's a separation. Sure. Sure, he's a fascist. Sure, he tortures people. Sure, you don't allow certain religious practices. Sure, you don't allow languages. Sure, you fuck people up for demonstrating. Sure, people go to prison and get disappeared. Sure, people get poisoned. But it's Russia. Really? Right. Or, it- or I was going to I thought you were going to say or uh, but it's not. It's not NATO, though. So th- this it's not must NATO. Be- That's right. <laughs> it's not NATO. It's not NATO. I say it's not NATO. You know, the buzzword is NATO. You know, I'm still getting, you know, it's amazing. 
it's it's the anti-imperialists that that brought up and then Putin grabbed onto it, the whole NATO angle here. As I reminded people, when this shit began, he was simply sending peacekeepers to safeguard a small group of, quote, my people, his people on the East Coast. Well, that's what the rhetoric was. And then you had 200,000 men and tanks and boats and planes and bombs and rockets all at once. People forget that. All of a sudden, it's the anti-imperialists talking about NATO pushed them into it. Really? I, I simply want to know, and I keep asking, would it have been okay for John F. Kennedy to have invaded and destroyed Cuba because of a missile on the border? Is it okay for Israel to attack Iran? I mean, lately I've heard the argument, well, for seven, eight, nine years, Putin has tried to negotiate with, in good faith with Ukraine. He's gotten nowhere. Forget the fact for at least four years with Trump, he did whatever he wanted to do. Forget the fact he's invaded at least two times, if not three times. Forget the fact that the East Coast, which is described as a breakaway, which is described as sort of freedom fighters, um, are surrogates for Russia and have been for years. Um, you know, people have this ability to separate themselves from the reality of what this person is, who is a monster, who is a beast. You can't separate the two. You can't connect imperialism overseas if you're not dealing with domestic imperialism. And he's been a monster for 20 years. Uh, there's, you know, it, it, it's sort of like I, 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 I'm getting a kick. It's the kick is the wrong word. But, you know, there are certain members of the, the anti-imperialist left that are talking about, you know, that bombing of the place that had 300 kids or 400 kids or 500. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? I mean, anyone who sees what the fuck is going on in Ukraine, I mean, it, 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 is it all backlot? Is it all Soros? Is it all fraud? Is it all fake? I mean, the funny part of it is I can picture Putin sitting around after the self-professed anti-imperialist started talking about NATO and started talking about, you know, the seven or eight years. And that's the point I was making. Israel has, quote unquote, been involved with colleague comrades, you know, members of, of, you know, states that they're close to for seven or eight years trying to, quote unquote, negotiate around the Iranian nuclear program. OK. It's not working. In Israel's mind, does that now give Israel a right to send a thousand rockets into Iran? I mean, this ability to parse away as if as if this is the USSR of 1982, 1987. That shit's gone. It's history. Do you think so that that title imperialism and the struggle against it begins at home? Do you think the reason some people are uh, supporting Putin full heartedly? Do you think it's because we don't actually understand uh how imperialism has operated in the U.S. Is that sort of what you mean by the title? Yeah, I, 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 look, there's two reasons why I did it. One is to draw the connection and make people think about it. But two, when you read my 4,500 word essay, no one can challenge anything that's in there. Yes, people can disagree over how badly someone is tortured. Or I didn't even get into the pissing contest of people poisoned and thrown off the fourth floor balcony. I'm not going to go down there. It dealt with laws. It dealt with real cases. It, deal, it dealt with what's going on. And as someone who said to me, they posted something that said, it's all lies. I said, what's, what's a lie? Does this statute not exist? Did this prosecution not happen? 
Did this finding not result? What's the lie? You know, the other problem is this. The other issue is this. And I, I can't get involved in the debate because I've got clients, and for lack of a better word, and people get furious when I say this on both sides of the divide. Because what started out as clearly a civil war in Syria, which had its roots going back decades, even before 2011, you know, did become an invasion by ISIS, did become, you know, this, this monstrosity. But some people, and perhaps many people, don't have the ability, because they saw Russia as, as heroic in Syria, and because they support Assad or the Syrian people of what they believe is the history, and Russia played a role, Russia's forgiven, absolutely forgiven. Um, and so they can't, they, they, they can't be a disconnect because of Putin's, and you know, whenever you get into, well, yeah, let's look at Aleppo and let's look at, you know, the mass carpet bombings and you know, everyone says, well, the white helmets, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the fake, the fake bombings and the fake this and the fake that, you know, I, I really don't want to get into it, but I bring it up only because people are desperate to be apologists for Putin. He's been the fucking despot for 20 years. He's just extended the constitution of Russia so he can do it for another 14 or 13 years. Are you kidding me? I mean, don't talk to me about enlightened, progressive, libertarian, for lack of a better word, you know, freedom and justice and equality when you're dealing with someone who oversees, who owns the FSB, who's been in power for 20 years, who has been ruthless. I'm not going to get involved in the whole Syrian discussion. You talk about Chechnya. You talk about Crimea. You talk about the previous attacks in the Ukraine. You talk about the political prisoners. You talk about the disappearance. You talk about religions that are barred. You talk about languages that are barred. You talk about people that get put in prison for putting a doll that's Putin on the street. All those things that self describe anti-imperialists find so incredibly disgusting and should about the United States, about the West. They embrace, they have no problem with in Russia. Do you think it's that some people on the American left have internalized a sort of, for lack of a better term, an inverted form of American exceptionalism where it's only the US can do evil and, and no other yeah, yeah, countries? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, and I think part of the problem is you've got Significant. Look, I get a lot of blowback because, you know, I there are people that for a variety of reasons don't travel, can't go somewhere, health reasons, financial reasons, whatever. You know, I talk about, you know, keyboard warriors. Now, I understand that I'm not saying that people can't weigh in, should not weigh in, should not, you know, learn, become informed, participate, debate, and, 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 and engage in the exchange, the marketplace of ideas. But there are people that promote a, a knowledge that's really based upon nothing but hearsay, upon which YouTube that I pull it up from, as experts, um, and, and given the very palpable, the very clear, and the very ugly history of the United States, of, 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 of the West in, in general, the United States in particular, the last 40, 50 years, I understand it. I understand if you're an American, if you're on the left, if you're here, and you take a look at what this country has done overseas, and you take a look at what this country has done domestically, I can understand taking a cold, hard look and saying, 
this is fucking bullshit and we have to fight it. But that doesn't mean you can't walk and chew gum at the same time and don't have the ability to look at Russia, to look at Putin, to look at what's going on to Muslims in China right now, to look at what's going on to Muslims in India, to look at what's going on in Yemen, to look at what's going on in a host of places. You know, I hate this deflection, this comparative whataboutism. And I often, when I, if I'm debating or talking to someone about it and they raise something, I say, yeah, 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 lots of people kill. I get it. I get it. But what I also find so juvenile and so sort of reactionary is, is I, the, the, the times where I've written pieces or I've done things on Twitter or I've spoken in public where people begin to like educate me about the United States. Oh, I didn't know. I had no idea. How, what did I, you, you, genocide in the United States, slavery, internment camps, two atom bombs, Vietnam, sanctions that killed the half. I had no idea. We have to get to the point where we understand in a world, you know, it's interesting. People talk about multinational corporations as being the enemy, and they're right. This, this worse than the flags, the anthems, the oath. When you begin to identify or look at multinationals as being really problematic in terms of self-determination, liberation worldwide, but yet can't get beyond the borders of your own country to take a look at violations of human rights overseas, it doesn't make the United States better. You know, people say to me, well, why don't you write about the United States? Write about the United States. I've been doing it for 50 fucking years. I, mean, I just I just wanted to add to that really briefly. You know, what I tell people is, you know, just because we're being critical of what Putin has done, what Russia is doing right now, that doesn't mean that we're giving a free pass uh, to the U.S. It doesn't mean that we support uh, the U.S. recognizing the annexation of the Golan Heights or the annexation of Western Sahara by Morocco. It doesn't mean that we forget about Iraq. It doesn't mean that we forget about any of those things. We can, you know... Uh, be critical of all players who commit uh, human rights violations. You know, I, it's been difficult. I've heard, and I understand, I've heard people being upset that you hear almost nothing about the horrors of refugees of color, about Aleppo, about Gaza. You hear oh, in mainstream well, media. Yemen. And we're, yeah, and Yemen, in the Rohingya, you know, uh, Myanmar. And yet we're hit every day with pictures of Two million, three million, four million blonde haired, blue eyed young women and men, children being removed. I understand that, but we have to have the capacity to look beyond the narrow confines and our own personal involvement with particular movements or issues. I mean, I've spent 30 years involved on one level or another in what I'd like to believe is the effort to the solidarity of self determination for Palestinians, for human rights, for justice. Um, in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean I, I have to shut up or I can't talk or I can't participate in representing people in fighting. Um, I've got a, you know, a case in the African Union right now. It's the second time I've gone into the African Union, this time against Israel. Last time was seven or eight years ago against Egypt. Um, had a case against Russia at Interpol this year in Lyon, France. Um, looking at a, a, at, a, at a case involving a Gulf country right now. Um, I, 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 I can't pick and choose. There's, there's ugly, there's evil, there's international law. You abide by it or you don't abide by it. And it's that simple. Um, you know, people say to me, well, 
what makes you take a case? What makes you represent something? You know, and there's two different types of cases. I've got, you know, homicide cases, drug cases, you know, assault cases, robbery cases, burglary. You know, that's the stuff I'm a criminal defense attorney I do in the United States. When it comes to political cases, there's generally one of two connections. And ideally, there's both. One is because they, they involve long term, a lot of intensive and extensive work with an individual, with a group of individuals, with a movement. It's a lot of time you can spend with someone. So I typically either, on some level, share the politics of the case. It doesn't have to be a complete conflation or overlap, but I have to identify with and support the politics. Um, I'm not the ACLU. Um, I wouldn't have represented. Yeah, the Klan should have marched in Skokie, but I wasn't going to fucking represent them. The ACLU didn't. I'm glad. Um, and the second is I have to identify and like the person. I have to. There has to be some connectivity with him or her or the group of people. That's been the advantage of my work. People get will get freaked out by this of why I had such a long and very good relationship with Hamas and its leadership is because I not only connected politically, but it just got some great leaders. It's got some great members. It's got some great participants, including women. For those folks out there saying, oh, just men. you know. So ideally, I get the best, the best of both worlds, a, a, a collegiality with the person or the group of people and also the politics. That's what sort of drives it. I'm curious, wrapping up here, uh, you know, I've come across a lot of uh, Palestinians lately on that trip I mentioned to D.C. I met a number of Palestinians who really felt for what is happening to Ukrainians. And the reason they said that they felt that way was because they know what it is like to be occupied. And I'm I'm wondering if you could comment on that and if you've seen that from uh, any Palestinian contacts of yours. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a very, very, very dear friend of mine from Gaza. And, and she came up and spent a week with me a few weeks ago during the, the early stages of this. And she couldn't watch TV. She couldn't listen to the news. She couldn't listen to the radio. She wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and, and I had simply, I had posted something on Twitter that said I had a dear friend who was up here for a week. I didn't mention names. It doesn't matter who it is. Couldn't watch radio, couldn't watch TV, couldn't follow the news. And they assumed it was because of something that had happened in Gaza where it happened in the West Bank. And that wasn't it. It was because of Ukraine. It was because it brought back her own memories of rockets, of hiding under her, her bathroom sink, of her house being hit, of her best friends being killed, of, of not being able to do anything, of not knowing where to go or how to survive. It, 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 it triggered. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm in regular communication with Palestinians, all, a whole wide selection, clients, friends, family, different politics. And while there is some disagreement going on because, you know, some of the some of the folks um, are very supportive of Putin in general um, uh, in civil society, I mean, the PFLP um, in particular. And that's a debate for another time. But the, 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 the compassion, the empathy. The, the support, because you're right, they know what it is to see a child lying in a pool of blood with no head. They know what it is to look at horror on the face of their mother or father before they're killed. They know what it is to be held captive. And it's even worse 
And that's why it's, it's, it's so important because unlike what's going on right now that the whole world is fixated on, it's generally a fixation about the few. You know, Gaza's now been attacked, you know, three major onslaughts and the great march of return, um, where tens of thousands have been crippled or murdered, where infrastructure has been destroyed, schools, hospitals, shelters, daycare centers, residential buildings targeted and leveled. And much of the world has, oh, there's, tell them to stop shooting rockets. Really? Who? So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think those people that have been victimized by the kinds of imperial violence and aggression that you're seeing Putin do right now can relate to it and understand. Well, Stanley Cohen, I want to thank you for coming on Parallaxes. I want to give you a, a chance to give um, maybe a, a, a closing statement here. What, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for about the past hour or so? I really think it's important for us to get to move beyond labels, to move beyond the, the limits of, identi of identification. Um, I, I use the example of, you know, Stalin was an epic hero in World War II. You know, no one suffered more than the Russians in terms of Leningrad, in terms of Stalingrad. No one lost more people in World War II than the Russians. He later became a fiend, an absolute war criminal who directly or indirectly took the lives of millions of people. You've got to break beyond. We all have to break, break beyond the artificial confines of chant, of talisman, of politics. And we've got to identify with, with issues of the time, with things that are unfolding and take a fresh, clean look at circumstances and players. And in particular around the Ukrainian situation, it's, it's not about Russia. I don't have a problem with Russians. I mean, my family goes back generations, not to Palestine, but to that region, to Lithuania, to Latvia, to Ukraine, to Russia. That's, you know, where I come from. My problem isn't with Russians. You're not going to see me, you know, periodically, you know, occasionally, uh, generically, I'll make a reference to Russia. But my problem is Putin. My problem is AFSB. My problem is you want to talk about Nazis? <laughs> you want to talk about neo-Nazis? Take a look at Russia. Um, and, and it's, it's, it, I see, I, I just slept and in, slipped into what I said I shouldn't do, but that's the point I'm making about Putin and the FSB. So what I'm urging people to do is, is when we see mass suffering, when you see mass, you know, pain, when you see millions in flight, when you see rockets being launched and tank shells being launched, you got to get away from the rhetoric of politics. At the end of the day, you got to come down to these are human beings, whether it's Palestine, whether it is Yemen, whether it is what's going on in Ukraine. You know, and I don't want to hear about, you know, the Nazi brigade. Great. All, all 27 million children and women that the Nazi brigade. So the takeaway is 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 I've been very fortunate over the course of a half a century of work. I've had some incredible mentors some incredible comrades, some incredible loves. I've had an opportunity to, to work with some incredible people on some important issues. Um, and if the one thing that I've, there are many things I've taken away. And the one thing that I would urge, especially for the young women and men that are coming up and taking our place, you're the, one of those young women and men, is you gotta break, break free from labels. 
from the narrow confines of, you know, collective group thought of, of you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, and the other takeaway is, um, it's, 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 I've said this and people, I've said it for years, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So at those moments when you're feeling the darkest and, and the damnedest and down and blue and you don't think you can make the haul, you can do it. Now, I'll tell you something in closing that my godfather told me many, many years ago, but I've ignored. But it sounds good. And it's you never let the mountains get too high or the valleys too low. And he told me that when I was 23 or 24, and I thought it was profound. Of course, I've ignored it my entire life, but it sounds good. So with that, up the rebels, maintain your principle. You got a long and difficult and tough ride ahead of you. And uh, count your, your, your success, not by those that love you, but by those who hate you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with attorney and activist Stanley L. Cohen. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can donate monthly in the sums of $1, $5, $10, $15, $15, $100. Any amount will help. You are what keeps this show going. So your financial support is very much appreciated. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.